Welcome back to Radical Ones. I'm your host, Xander Schultz. I'm here with my producer, Phineas. Phineas, we got a good episode today. Who are we talking to? Today, we have Alex Duran. Alex is a formerly incarcerated individual who is now dedicating his life to working to mend the system of mass incarceration in America. He is a program officer overseeing the criminal justice reform portfolio at Galaxy Gives. Essentially, he is, and I know you work together with Alex, which I know you'll get into, he basically decides the funding allocation for criminal justice initiatives. So where the money goes, right? Yeah, that's correct. I thought someone like Alex would be so great to bring on the show because he has, unlike some of our guests who are very focused on a specific vertical of the problem, he has a really great 10,000 foot view of the space as a whole uh, because he's in charge of funding different initiatives and identifying the different kind of weaker pillars that you can go knock down if you're trying to knock down this big house that is mass incarceration. I think, you know, we've had a lot of guests on this program that cover pieces of the mass incarceration puzzle. And oftentimes I think about like a hundred years from now, what are we going to look back on and be like, I can't believe, you know, we were doing that. The fact that we have over 2 million people consistently in cages in our country and the wealthiest country in the world has responded to poverty and drug addiction and mental health with this hyper punitive system that demonizes the folks that we let slip through the safety nets. I think that's going to be one of one of the big black eyes of this era. If we can't end it, I mean, I hope it's still not a black eye 100 years from now. I, it feels like we have some traction and we're starting to chip away at this thing and we're starting to get a better understanding of how we can respond we always say in the office, Alex is going to be a senator one day. He has just this level-headedness to him and hyper-low ego. He's able to analyze things objectively. He's, he almost feels like he belongs in a different century. <laughs> he's, he's got this like philosopher, this like deep but like slow pace to the way he th- thinks things out. That's just, um, it's beautiful to be around him. I'm really lucky to consider him a, a friend and a coworker. I am a program director at Galaxy Gives, managing the criminal justice reform portfolio. And fundamentally, we are trying to dismantle the carceral state. If I had a bumper sticker, it would be to dismantle the carceral state and build an alternative model that doesn't rely on incarceration and punishment, but rather healing and uh, and accountability and justice. Let's flesh out. Both both of those pieces of the equation. Then, when you say carceral state, what are you what are you speaking about? I think some people might just think jails or prisons or wh- what do you mean when you say carceral state? Yeah, I mean the carceral, the burgeoning carceral state. Um, it expands from having cops in schools to sort of the policing practices and policies that you know take kids from like the community that I grew up in in University Heights in the Bronx and leads them to a life of crime and ending up in in a prison in upstate New York. Um, It could be not having the mental health um, care necessary to to combat some of the things that 
that one see in our community could be the lack of social safety net. The carceral state is a response to a whole wider rate of, of social problems um, that we only respond with law enforcement rather than with care and with um, safety and compassion. And so that, that segues nicely to the second piece of the equation you're talking about is like the, so there's the destruction of the carceral state and then there's like standing up and supporting these alternatives. Um, I imagine that's equally like a, in a wide array of services, correct? That's correct. And, um, and also removing a lot of the power that the carceral state has to recreate itself into other um, systems of oppression. Mm. And while we're siphoning funds from the carceral state, we need to make sure that those funds are going into the services that we know keep people safe and, um, and healthy, like mm. high quality public education, green spaces, mental health care, like I spoke about, getting rid of, of, of food deserts, having banks, making sure we don't have these sort of predatory lending um, institutions um, in our neighborhoods that are, that are really just um, making money off of uh, black and brown folks. I wonder, you know, in your work, it's probably pretty clear when you're doing giving grants to tear down the carceral state, right? But it gets foggy, foggier, I imagine, at times of like when you feel like you're maybe out of your lane when you're investing in alternatives. Like you mentioned green spaces, right? And as a program officer of a justice reform organization, do you ever write grants for green spaces or what role do you think like a justice reform focused foundation has in those alternatives? When is it not your lane? When is it your lane? We spoke to uh, someone that was on the education board in LA recently, and they kind of have a similar issue. It was like, they're same with the justice system. Like they're at the inflection point of so many of our systemic failures. And so they try to fill in the gaps, but it gets foggy when like, it's no longer their lane to fill. And so as you think about these alternatives, when do you see an alternative as a gap that a justice reform foundation should fill? And when do you see it as kind of like outside your purview? And how do you invest in solutions that might not be directly related to the justice system, like things like more green spaces and impacted neighborhoods? And I will say this, the criminal justice system intersects with a lot of things. And we are not you know, only funding advancing decarcerative policies. What we're trying to do is transform the entire justice system. Mm. Um, and sometimes that that's means, you know, organizing folks who are working um, in the informal economy to try to you know, bring relief to those folks. Funding projects that sit at the intersections of different systems. Can you give me an example of uh, one of those investments that sits at the intersection of a couple different systems? Sure. Like, for example, we fund an organization called One Voice that is mobilizing correctional officers. Like you, you wouldn't mm. think that, you know, correctional officers actually um, sort of need to be mobilized. Um, but we're including different voices in this conversation for, for reform because, you know, if you have a conversation with a police officer or correctional officer, sometimes they don't grow up um, wanting to go work in a prison. They want it to be something else. But it could be that in that rural community that they grew up in, that's the only option they had. And the correction officers have one of the highest suicide rates in the country. They deal with trauma. There's a lot of stuff that they're going through that mirrors some of the same things that incarcerated people are doing as well. Um, and we should also um, having them in this conversation. So 
you know, Andy Potter, who runs that organization, speaks about having wanted to be an engineer, not a correctional officer, mm. but because of the limited opportunities, he had to go into corrections. Um, and now he's working to reform that system um, into uh, you know, siphon money away from, from systems of harm. You know, so we should actually listen to, to the people that work in that system and they will tell you that, you know, it's a harmful and punitive one. The second big question on this show is typically like, what's the history of this issue? In your case, I wonder, you mentioned earlier, you have a finite amount of dollars to try, and the space has a finite amount of dollars to try to solve a really, really big issue, right? Uh, incarceration in America, it, in my opinion, is one of, one of the key issues of our time. I think a good question for you then is like, what is the history of, you know, strategic philanthropic dollars, you know, from the early days to now, what was being funded previously? How has that thinking evolved? But you're, you're someone who's been in a few really big foundations, Ford Foundation and Open Society, and now at a kind of more boutique shop with Galaxy Gives. I just want your your view on on the history of philanthropy and how how the strategy has changed over the years. You know, well, I'll start by saying that my path into philanthropy has been a real untraditional one. This journey started at Eastern Correctional Facility when I was still incarcerated, serving twelve years in prison. Um, and in twenty fifteen, Darren Walker, the president of the Ford Foundation, made a visit. They were funding the Bar College Prison Initiative Program, which I was a student of, and Darren and I sat at the prison library and have a conversation. And one of the things that I impressed upon him that getting a liberal arts degree from Bar was wasn't going to be a panacea. It was still, mm. we were going to face many hurdles upon release. And I pressed him on whether he would hire former incarcerated people at his foundation. Um, and that's how he um, I actually got into philanthropy because Darren's um, and I really salute him for this. He was very intentional, went back to his foundation and sort of looked at all the hiring policies and said, well, um, we're closing off opportunities to hire people that are not from you know, traditional Ivy League um, schools. Um, and, 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 and philanthropy has been really an elite space. So if, if he had not had that intentionality and, and, and brought people from the Bar College Prison Initiative, I would have never um, made it to the Ford Foundation. Once I got in the door, it was really eye-opening for me. You know, I, I sort of went from different departments at Ford and saw how things operated and, 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 the, and the privilege that, that people in the foundation have to sort of direct resources. Philanthropy never will have the same power that the government has. Right. You know, I, I always say, like, you know, philanthropy is not positioned to, to provide services but really to incubate ideas and test them out. Meaning philanthropy should not be the funding source for education across all prisons. Philanthropy maybe should pilot an education program and then make the case that the government should be funding that program, correct? That's what you mean? That's correct. I mean, like if we, if we take, for example, the New York City Department of Education's budget, which is around $24 billion a year, that's more money than philanthropy gives away in total around the United States. So wow. I will never sort of have right. that power. Um, what we have is the power to really test out, incubate ideas and show that it works, like the Bar College Prison Initiative Program, which is a great liberal arts um, program in six New York State correctional institutions, and then, sh and, and, and then have the government pay for it. 
that's the real power of philanthropy. And so, so what you just described, this like philosophy around incubate and then organize so the government adopts policy or programs, was that the focus of the Ford Foundation when you arrived? I know for a long time when I thought about philanthropy, it was you know, like charity water, like building a well, (laughs) or like, you know, or it was direct services for the most part. When I thought about philanthropy was, you know, build a community center, do, do, you know, give away t-shirts, whatever it was, Tom's shoes, right? Give shoes away. And so was the Ford foundation, were they at this point where they under they had those two prongs incubate and then pay for organizing? Was that, was that always the case or was it, was there kind of more this direct service lens? Like I was describing prior to a certain year. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I think that we cannot untether philanthropy from these harms that we are actually trying to solve for. Anand Giradaradas actually speaks about this in in his book, Winners Take All. Um, You know, you have Jeff Bezos, Mark Zuckerberg, all of these um, billionaires who have kind of benefited from this system and now are, you know, one are thanks because they're they're saying they're trying to fix it by creating a philanthropic institution so the same problems that these philanthropists are trying to solve for they had a hand in creating and uh you know as a directly impacted person working in a philanthropic institution um that's certainly not lost on me and it's something uh you know I, i'm really proud to have to be working at galaxy gifts where most of our colleagues are directly impacted folks and are bringing a, the lived experience lens to this work and is informing the decisions that they're making. Um, but you don't really see that in, in too many institutions. And I think that that's something that philanthropy needs to do better at bringing in folks to work and, and be part of the community that they're trying to change. What, what do you think are some like practices and policies that non-impacted people had put in place in justice reform specifically that we're now like moving away from as folks like yourself get involved in the space? I think like traditional philanthropy has sort of like privileged like research, think tank institutions, university, mm. right? rather than grassroots organizing and like um, having the people who are most impacted by these systems that we're trying to dismantle sort of lead the work. I think that right. as directly impacted people have made it into these institutions, they have questions those policies. Like, do we really need another report to say that, you know, mass incarceration <laughs> right. is a failed system, right? right. Um, so, it, you know, bringing in, um, you know, folks that are looking at this problem from a different lens um, and centering those people that are most impacted, um, you know, that has really changed. Right. And then when it's impacted people, this problem is so real that, the need, like, I don't know if I'm saying this correctly, like, correct me if I'm wrong. The need for it to be solved is real because it's hurting people you love, people around you, yourself in many cases, et cetera. And so there's no time to admire the problem and there's no time to waste money and resources on the problem. It's, it's hyper important to do what's effective. And because folks are proximate to not only the problem, but you know, what, what's worked in their communities and, and what continues to work in their communities, they're best able to invest in those solutions, correct? That's absolutely true. And, you know, for me, this is not a theoretical problem. Like I may be writing a grant recommendation um, and later on that evening get a call from a friend of mine inside of a prison in upstate New York um, wanting a, right. a, a parole letter of recommendation. Um, so mm. to, to me, there's no 
clear demarcation between my professional and my personal self. I think I bring my full sort of person to this work and keep in mind who am I accountable to. Um, and those are the people that are left behind um, that are still sitting in those cages. One of the questions that we, that we always do on here is how'd you get introduced to this issue and, and then when did you decide it was your mission? We heard a little bit about that earlier, right? That, that you were incarcerated at one point uh, and then you had this moment. How would you describe when you got introduced to this issue of mass incarceration and then also, I don't know if it was that Darren Walker experience where you decided it was your mission or it was just an opportunity and then within that, you decide, oh, this is where I'm going to spend my life and my life's work. Um, no, when I met Darren Walker, that was the uh, that, that, that was the sort of entry point into philanthropy. Mm. What, what really informed my experience of trying to change the criminal legal system was my experience in with my case, really. I got 12 years for a crime that I should have really gotten, you know, two or three years for. Uh, I was involved in a, in a, in a shootout where the, you know, person lost their lives, but I wasn't, my, my bullet did not kill the, the person who unfortunately lost his life um, that day. And me and my co-defendant both got, we were sentenced to 14 years to prison, ended up doing 12. Um, but I remember when I was going um, for my hearings and I was uh, waiting in Rikers Island, uh, the, the the prosecutor offered me three and a half years to testify to my co-defendant. And, you know, I, I would have gotten that time um, had I testified on him. Um, and I decided not to. Um, and... You know, that's when I got really my first experience with a system that that doesn't really care whether justice is accomplished, um, but rather a conviction. Do you say that because they knew what had happened and they were just they were kind of using these 11 additional years as a tool to get something done versus like as a just being interested in what happened and, and, and helping folks get the resources they need. Yeah, I mean the, 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 the district attorney wasn't interested in in really um, achieving justice. They were they were really just interested in I guess furthering their career. Uh, me, my co-defendant and I we both got the same time because none of us were were talking and we didn't want to say what happened. But if I had testified, he would have gotten 25 years to life and I would have gotten three and a half, which is what I was mm. offered. And, and because we didn't, we, we, you know, we, they, 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 they didn't really determine who was the, the person that did it. And they didn't really care. And, you know, like 98% of cases um, in our justice system are pleaded out. And that's just what happened with us. Um, and I never really got a chance, you know, I, uh, to, to say to the person who lost his life that day to their family to, to say that, I, you know, I'm sorry that I, you know, that I played a part in that person um, losing their life that day, um, even though I didn't know that my co-defendant was going to you know, kill a person that day. But, um, you know, I was I was sorry. I, I was remorseful, um, but I never got a chance to to say that to the um, victim's family. And so you you were incarcerated through this this event you spent 12 years in incarceration when did you start thinking about justice reform like i'm not i'm sure like you know you realized there there was an injustice going on with the way you were sentenced and what was going on with the da 
but it's probably, you know, while you're facing these charges, you're probably not thinking, all right, when I get out, I'm going to fix the system in that moment. Or are you, I don't know. When did you start thinking like about being a, a player in changing how the system works? I think it happened slowly. You know, like I, I was at Rikers Island for 29 months waiting for my case to be adjudicated. Um, and Rikers Island was just a, you know, it was like a gladiator school, complete mayhem all the time there. And um, I remember I got into a fight and ended up in solitary confinement. Um, and, and that was like torture for me. Um, mm. and, and I just kept on asking like, wow, like this is, this is what happens to incarcerated people. And you started questioning, um, and I kind of sort of developed an autodidactic, um, education for myself where I started really teaching myself and, and reading the constitution, reading um, sort of our founding documents and looking at at, um, at the law and like saying, well, there was a sense of injustice here. And I, so I started getting educated, then I made it into college. And I said, you know, now that I developed these, these skills, I'm going to use it um, to change. And so now you're at Galaxy Gives, you're the program officer over there. How are you going about solving it? What 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 is the the latest strategy? What does your day to day look like? What are you up to? Yeah, no, this is um this is exciting work. Um, our work will really be sort of broken down into um into four pillars. We are, you know, advancing decarcerative policies um in a couple of areas. It's undergirded really by four focus areas. One is pretrial reform. Galaxy Gives has made a huge impact on ending cash bail across the United States. Um, Mike Novogratz, our founder, actually sits at the board of the Bail Project. Another um, area of focus is indigent defense. Public defenders have sort of been left out of the criminal justice reform conversation, and we're trying to sort of mobilize their voices for change. Second chances at the back end of the system, we're trying to shorten the lens of stay, people serving long-term prison sentences, and then in probation and parole reform. So those are the four sort of buckets of advancing decarcerative policies of the first pillar. Our second pillar is we're building power in communities impacted by mass incarceration. Um, so we fund organizations like the Flora Rice Restoration Coalition, um, Voice of the Experience in um, Louisiana, Forward Justice in North Carolina, Vocal New York Communities for Change, this in action in New York for example. These are political organizing groups led by incarcerated or formerly, formerly incarcerated individuals, correct? These are organizations that are led and mostly conceived by people who have been impacted by the system mm. um, and are now you know, working to change it. So you're funding organizations and then you're also funding the development of leadership. How do those things differ when you're funding the development of leadership and like what's the outcome there? Why, why is that particularly important? I know you're so excited about this particular investment. You know, we believe that the people who have come in contact with this system are the ones that should be leading the work to change it. Like me, having been in prison for 12 years, having been in solitary confinement for cumulative time of three years, yeah, I have a, a viewpoint that no one who has gone through that experience could bring, right? So we want to sort of build the capacity of those folks and have them leading the movement for transforming the criminal legal system. 
I guess this leads into my next question, uh, which is if you're as successful as possible, right? All of these investments you're making work out, you're able to get a bigger budget, make more investments, keep fun funding the things you think are important. What is true about the world in 10 years? I think it's true that we'll have a prison population that is less than 500,000 people. Which, which would be huge, by the way. For those that don't know, we're at 2.3 million right now, correct? So we're going 2.3 to 500K. That's correct. We'll have a, a society where no healing and accountability is privileged and not um, you know, punishment and the destruction of families. How's it going in, the, in this fight that you're in? You've been in it for a few years now, like the, f the philanthropy side of fighting mass incarceration. Like, how, how is it going? Are, are we winning? Are we losing? <laughs> is the trend going down? Are we on our way to that 500,000? Do we need to do something radically different to get there? Like, like what is the state of, of your fight right now? You know, at times, it seems like we're moving at a glacial pace, um, and it's frustrating. But I think we've we've made um, a lot of progress in the last few years, especially on the narrative front. I think the George Floyd murder was a, a pivotal point in our history um, because it allowed um, you know so many Americans to really see what we've sort of been saying for so long. Right. And this you know this this debate about sort of reallocating funds from police departments and into social services um, would have not been possible um, a couple of years ago. So I think that we're making progress, albeit um, it may not seem that way. Right. I said earlier that I spend cumulatively, you know, three years in, in, in solitary confinement. New York State just passed a law um, that would shorten the stay of solitary confinement of people so I, I i will i will have to say that we are making progress and the the our investments are paying off you know i think that we in our lifetime sander we we could see the end of mass incarceration i really believe that last thing we do here is give the guests the floor so whatever you want to say you know you can go as as wide or abstract as you want it's all yours thank you sander um you know, the last thing I guess I will say is that, you know, philanthropy really has an opportunity to lead at this moment and to test out ideas that can stand up models of transformational justice that do not rely on incarceration. And if we have the courage to fund those programs and to fund an idea that that reimagines public safety in our country, we, we would be looking back 25, 50 years from now and say, well, you know, we met that moment and we, we sort of rose to the occasion. And I think that when you've been sort of been served the same meal all the time, which is prisons and jails and, and just brutalization, you sort of tend to believe that that's the only option that we have. And we just need to, to, to sort of reimagine what safety really looks like. When you think about safety, the first thing that, that, that comes to mind for, for folks are not the police. It's not a prison. It's not a jail. You think of moments of safety, you know, you think about family and being in a space where, where love is present and, yeah. you know, you're really being cared. Um, so we have to reimagine just a complete different system that doesn't include 
just punishment because our we have an insatiable appetite to punish people in this country yep. and i think that that hasn't worked you know any company that puts out two-thirds defective product within three years wouldn't stay in business you're referencing that our recidivism rate is 65 plus percent correct within three years two-thirds of people released from prisons go back Right. If our stated goal was, and I think this is the point a lot of people make, is it's, it's not really the goal of the system. If our goal really was to take in folks who are committing harm in society and then get them to a point where they're no longer harmful, we are failing in so many ways. If you read the mission statements of the Department of Corrections, whether it's New York State or other states, you will think that they do a noble job. But in fact, they're actually putting out people that are not whole. Thank you for listening to Radical Ones. If you're looking for more content like this, you can head over and be a supporter on our Patreon, patreon.com slash Radical Ones. You can also follow us on social at Radical Ones Podcast. We're on Twitter and Instagram. I hope this finds you happy, healthy, and safe. Take care.